Between 1933 and 1934, a man and his gang robbed their way through 24 banks and four police stations all across the Midwest. He was arrested and put in jail and prison several times. He escaped twice. He was charged but not convicted of a murder, and he was adored by the public for his personality and charm. When his crime spree came to an end, he'd changed the landscape of the Bureau of Investigation, soon to be the FBI, forever. He'd stolen over $7 million in today's money, but that was nothing compared to what the FBI spent trying to catch him. In the end, he was shot and killed on the streets of Chicago. Or was he? This is the story of famed gangster John Dillinger, public enemy number one. Hey, y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. And for this week's welcome, <laughs> and for our Finnish friends, Terevetula, Terevetula, Terevetula. So there you go. <laughs> There's to our Finnish friends. Oh my gosh. Well, wherever you're listening, yep. be sure to like, rate, and review the podcast. That helps other people to find us. Yes. You can always go to Facebook and join our Facebook group, The In-Laws and Outlaws. Mm-hmm. They've been so much fun over the holidays. It's a brand new year. Yep. It's 2023. I don't believe in resolutions, but I did decide I was going to drink more water this year. All right. That's the only thing I've decided. I'm going to drink more water. Well, I started working out again this morning in the gym over here. you and millions of other people started working out yesterday or today. I'm writing down everything I'm doing so I can keep track of it. That's good. I think think being healthy is important, like drinking water. Yes. Well, this case... There's a lot to it. I'm going to jump in quickly because, okay. you know, we always say you might have to walk the dog a couple of times. You really <laughs> might have to walk the dog a couple of times. All right. Before we get started, I want to thank some sources, Wikipedia, FBI.gov, PBS.org, Crime Museum, New York Daily News, History versus Hollywood, Rolling Stone Magazine, The Indianapolis Star, World History Documentaries, The Pima County Public Library in Tucson, Arizona, Dayton.com, Grunge.com, The Chicago Tribune, and History.com. Well, without further ado, let's do it. John Herbert Dillinger was born on June 22, 1903, at 2053 Cooper Street in the Oak Hill section of Indianapolis, Indiana, Hmm. to John Wilson Dillinger and Mary Ellen, or Molly, Lancaster. He's the youngest of two children. He has an older sister, Audrey, and he's going to be raised in this middle-class residential neighborhood in Indianapolis. His father owned a grocery store, and I read that his father owned four houses. Oh, I don't wow. know if he was renting them out or what he was doing. Wow. He was a grocer by trade. His mother died when little Johnny was three. His sister, Audrey, who was 14 years older than he was, took care of him until she married Emmett Fred Hancock a year later, 
at the tender age of 17, John's father remarried Elizabeth Lizzie Fields in 1912 when Johnny was nine. Okay. John's father alternated between disciplining and spoiling his son. He beat Johnny with a barrel stave, Mm. yet gave him enough money for candy. And we know all about barrel staves in Kentucky. It's like the narrow length of the wood that's got a slightly beveled edge. Oh, yeah. It forms the side of barrels, like bourbon barrels. Okay. But on some days, his father would lock Johnny in the house all day. And on others, he would let him roam the neighborhood until it was dark. Wow. Like we did when we were growing yeah, up. Yeah, of course. He came home when the streetlights went on. Sure. Johnny was constantly getting into trouble. He led a neighborhood gang called the Dirty Dozen. And he pilfered coal from railroad freight cars. Most neighbors didn't know about Johnny's exploits, and they described him as a cheerful, likable kid who dressed neatly and was no more mischievous than any other boy. But I also read that he had a strange personality, and he liked to bully younger children. Now, at 16, Dillinger dropped out of school and began working at a machine shop in Indianapolis. He did very well there. He was smart. He was a good worker. But the temptations of that Indianapolis nightlife called to him. Hmm. He started staying out all night. He always returned home late. This is all creating tension with his dad. And these two would fight about this a lot. He was a party animal. He was a little bit of a party animal. He liked he liked sex workers and yeah. he liked partying. Okay. In 1920, his father sold his property in Indianapolis so he could retire at a farm in Mooresville, Indiana. And he's also hoping that this country life's going to provide Johnny with a more stable environment. Okay. John's dad thinks that the city life of Indianapolis is corrupting him. (laughs) I don't know how corrupt. I used to live in Indianapolis. I don't know how corrupt it is. (laughs) Instead, Dillinger kept his job in Indianapolis, and then he would commute 18 miles on his motorcycle. Wow. He refused to tell his father about his nightly escapades, which included drinking, fighting, and visiting ladies of the night. (laughs) Sex workers. He was a party animal. He was a party animal, just like you said. Yeah. In 1923, John enlists in the U.S. Navy. He was a petty officer, third class machinery repairman on the USS Utah. Okay. But just a few months after he enlists, and while the ship is docked in Boston, <laughs> John walks off the ship and he doesn't come back. <laughs> he was a little AWOL. He goes AWOL, and he will be dishonorably discharged just a few months later. Mm. After he's discharged, he goes back to Mooresville, Indiana, where he meets Beryl Ethel Hovius. Beryl? Beryl. <laughs> it's spelled like Merrill, but with a B. It's a very unfortunate name. Beryl Ethel. Ethel's her middle name. Okay. He falls in love. These two marry on April 12th, 1924. John is 20. Beryl is 16. He wanted to settle down. He really did. But he had a hard time. He couldn't find a job. So what do you do when you can't find a job? You turn to a life of crime. Right. And during the summer of 1924, Dillinger played shortstop on the Martinsville baseball team where he met and befriended Edgar Singleton. And Ed told John about a local grocer who would be carrying his daily receipts, his money, on his way from work to the barbershop. The plan was that John could easily rob the elderly grocer for the cash he would be carrying while Ed waited in a getaway car just down the street. And he and his friend Ed, who was also the town pool shark, they planned this robbery. Ed is an ex-convict, so he's a little more seasoned than than John. Why he's an ex-convict? I don't. Okay. 
On September 6, 1924, John and Ed rob this grocer, Frank Morgan. He's returning home with the week's money, $50, when the two of them jump him. And John beat Frank Morgan with a cloth-wrapped iron bolt. But Frank was not severely hurt. He also had a gun in his pocket, which fired, but it didn't hit anybody. And it just so happened that a minister who recognized John reported them to the police. Like, don't I know you from Sunday service? I mean, you know, you're seeing one of your congregants beating somebody, an elderly man, and taking their money. Yeah, you kind of have to report that. Yeah. Yeah. The next day, both John and Ed are picked up by the police. These two are arrested. Ed pleads. He's an ex-convict. Ed pleads. Not guilty. Not guilty. John's never been arrested before. But John's father, who's a deacon at the Mooresville Church, goes to the Morgan County prosecutor. His name is Omar O'Hara to talk about John's options. What are my son's options? And then John's dad comes to him and says, you just need to confess to the crime. You need to plead guilty. And John never got himself a defense attorney. Really? No. He just he was, was following his dad's, you know, advice. Banking on the goodwill. Yes. Yeah. John was convicted of assault and battery with intent to rob and conspiracy to commit a felony. And because he's confessed and said, yeah, I did it. I'm sorry. And his dad has spoken to the DA. John is thinking he's going to get off with an easy sentence. Right. But John, to the shock of his father, is sentenced to 10 to 20 years Whoa. in prison wow. for the crimes. Wow. His dad goes to the judge and says, please, can you shorten the sentence? But the judge is like, no dice. Yeah. So what he's going to do as part of this horrible sentence is to testify against his friend, Ed, who pled not guilty. He's going to say, no, Ed's guilty. Right. And on the way to Mooresville, John escapes his police escort, but they catch up with him a few minutes later. He was trying to, he was trying to make an escape. Yeah. And then after testifying against Ed... Ed is sentenced to two to 14 years. That's it? That's it. But he's the one that did it. Well, they both did it. Well, I know, but he was the one that was beating him. Yeah, but he also said he was not guilty. Gotcha. John got at the short end of the stick. Gotcha, because he pleaded guilty. Yeah. Okay. And okay, he's okay, given okay. the maximum penalty of 10 to 20 years in prison, even though he had no previous criminal record. Wow. And Ed, who was much older and did have a prison record, served less than two years of his two to 14 year sentence. Unbelievable. Because of his attorney. Yeah. And moral of the story, get yourself an attorney. Exactly. Yes. Would you like an attorney? Yes, I would. John would be incarcerated at Indiana Reformatory in Pendleton and the Indiana State Prison from 1924 to 1933. He's quoted as saying as he entered the prison system, quote, I will be the meanest bastard you ever saw when I get out of here, end quote. <laughs> wow. He wasn't lying. Yeah, yep. Now, when John gets his physical exam upon arrival at prison, they determine that he has gonorrhea. Oh, oh. Too much nightlife in Indianapolis. Yeah, that's that's not good. And he has to be treated for it, which is painful because where penicillin won't be discovered until 1928, oh. they did have treatments like you're going to uh, all the men are just going to hate uh-huh. this. They would inject mercury, silver or other antibacterial agents into the urethra. Oh, and the moral of that story is don't get gonorrhea. <laughs> yeah, I just crossed my legs. <laughs> While he's in jail, 
John writes a letter to his dad saying, quote, I know I've been a big disappointment to you, but I guess I've done too much time for where I went in a carefree boy. I'm coming out a bitter man toward everything in general. If I'd gotten off more leniently when I made my first mistake, this would have never happened. Although he's occasionally disciplined for disorderly conduct, he was not considered dangerous. John played on the prison baseball team and he worked in the shirt factory as a seamster. Hmm. And he had this impressive manual dexterity and he frequently completed twice his daily quota. Oh, wow. He secretly helped other men meet their quotas and he made lots of friends inside prison. He wasn't like Elf in with the etch a sketch. Yeah, he wasn't falling behind like Buddy the Elf. But he did become very bitter while he's in prison because he's there a long time. Sure. And I read that at the time, being in prison was like going to gangster trade school. Oh, wow. And John had lots of friends and people who wanted to teach him while he was incarcerated, including seasoned bank robbers. And these guys were Harry Pete. Can you imagine? Harry Pete Piermont. That's his name? Harry P. Piermont, <laughs> Charles Makeley, Russell Clark, and Homer Van Meter, who taught John how to be a successful criminal. Wow. They'd sit around, they'd talk about, you know, planning these heists and things that they're going to do as soon as they're out of jail. These, mm. are, these are the jobs we're going to pull as soon as we're released. Wow. Now, John's wife, Beryl, and his family visited him a lot while he was in prison, and John wrote to them a lot. And in a letter to his wife, dated August 18th, 1928, John wrote, Dearest, we will be so happy when I can come home to you and chase your sorrows away. For, sweetheart, I love you so. All I want is just to be with you and to make you happy. Write soon and come sooner. Wow. I mean, that makes him sound like a nice guy. Well, he's very much a romantic, as you're going to find out through oh, this. Okay. Very, he's very, He's a hopeless romantic. But he sends this letter to his wife, Beryl, write soon and come sooner. But Beryl wasn't interested in John chasing her sorrows away, which mm. was he, which was what he said he wanted to do. Right. She was just interested in getting, just simply getting away. Okay. And shortly after receiving this particular letter, Beryl filed for a divorce, which she was granted on June 20th, 1929. Wow. John was devastated. Of course he was. He will later say, quote, I began to know how you feel when your heart is breaking. For four years, I had looked forward to going back home, and now there wasn't any home to be going back to, end quote. Wow. Then October 24th, 1929, the stock market crashed on Wall Street and the United States Great Depression began. Mm. Just a month after that, Dillinger is denied parole. And after achieving exemplary behavior for two years, he's still denied parole. And John is madder than a bag full of badgers. Wow. He asked to be sent to the Indiana State Prison in Michigan City, and John told the officials that the penitentiary had a better baseball team. <laughs> but what he really wanted was to leave the first prison behind and join his old friends, Harry Pierpont and Homer Van Meter, who had been transferred there. Harry and Homer. There Those you. are his homeboys, Harry yeah. and Homer. Now, at the penitentiary in Michigan City, the guards were mean and the discipline was harsh. Mm. And John was really surprised that there were so many old men there. There were guys there that were his dad's age. And he became depressed and he didn't bother joining the baseball team there. Again, they put him to work in a shirt factory where he again produced double quotas and assisted less skillful men. He's handy with the sewing machine. Right. 
Now, while at the state pen, John learned everything he could from these old guys, these inmates. He met Walter Dietrich, who had worked with Herman K. Lamb, a former officer of the German army. Lamb immigrated to the United States, and he became successful by applying his military training to bank robbery. There you go. He would carefully investigate a bank's layout and assign each person on the job a role. The driver of the getaway car would plan the escape route down to the tenth of a mile Hmm. and practice it several times. Wow. And this method worked really well for Lamb after he gets out. And John Dillinger's going to use it a lot. Herman Lamb's method worked for him for 13 years until he was killed in a shootout with the police. Hmm. And while John is in prison, there's loads going on in the real world of crime and punishment. On April 24, 1930, the first list of public enemies is published by the Chicago Crime Commission, and Al Capone is in first place. Big Al. The next year, in October 1931, Al Capone is sentenced to 11 years in prison for income tax evasion. Then, in 1932, March 1st, Charles Lindbergh's baby is kidnapped. And a few months later in June, the Lindbergh Law is passed, making it a federal crime to transport a kidnapped person across state lines for ransom. And on July 1st, the Justice Department Bureau of Investigation is officially renamed the U.S. Bureau of Investigation. Hmm. And the Bureau of Investigation was headed up by... J. Edgar Hoover, who took it over at the age of 29 years old and would be the director for 48 years until he dies. Wow. I didn't know they changed the name of it. Well, the Bureau, yeah, the the Justice Department Bureau of, it was the Justice Department. Then it was the U.S. Bureau of Investigation. Then it became the The FBI. Federal. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then it becomes the FBI. I had no idea. But Hoover gets this job at 29 years old, and he holds it for almost 50 years Mm. until he dies. And he gets the position in 1924 when the attorney general at the time, General Harlan Fisk Stone, asked him if he would clean it all up, meaning all the crime. And J. Edgar says, yes, but I only want to answer to you. I only want to answer to the attorney general and nobody else. Okay. So this is a man with tremendous power. Sure. And when Hoover takes over, he tries to make being an agent a really glamorous thing. He also centralized fingerprinting all in one spot. And at the FBI headquarters, he wanted all the files on every criminal, including John Dillinger and the people who are eventually going to be his gang. Gotcha. But they are completely unaware that the government is compiling this list and they're getting more centralized. Mm. Because before it was like everything was in this sheriff's office and that sheriff's office. And if you crossed the county line or the state line, it was like, yeah, that's somebody else's problem. And two, I mean, you know, the only way that you got news in those days was a newspaper and those newspapers usually were local. And yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, while John is still serving at the Indiana State Pen, he meets James Jenkins, a convicted murderer who liked to talk about his sister, Mary. Hmm. Mary Jenkins Longnecker was an unhappily married 23-year-old who lived in Dayton, Ohio. And from afar, John begins to have thoughts about Mary. There's something about Mary. (laughs) (laughs) It's about this same time that John's dad launched a campaign to get him out of prison. He gets 188 signatures on a petition. And after eight and a half years, John Dillinger is paroled on May 10th, 1933. He felt like he had paid his debt to society. He's released from the Indiana State Prison at Michigan City on May 22nd. And he goes straight from there to say goodbye to his stepmother, Lizzie. 
she died from a stroke. Mm. And according to prison records, Lizzie worked harder to gain John's early release and parole than anybody. She wrote more letters to John and public officials, and she visited him more than any other relative. And John loved her. He thought of her as his mother because that was really the only mother he'd ever known. Right. But he's released at the height of this great American depression. 13 million people are unemployed. 25% of working America couldn't get a job. And 2 million people were homeless. And John's going to go right back to robbery. Mm. But first, remember Mary? Oh, yeah. The girl he heard about from his friend in prison. Right. Well, John couldn't get Mary off his mind, and he drove a battered Model A Ford to Dayton, Ohio, where Mary lived after his release from prison. In Dayton, he travels west of First Street, and he's hanging out of the car shouting at people <laughs> that he's from out of town, and he's looking for Mary Jenkins Longnecker. Oh, and he's saying, I'm her brother, and then he finds her. He actually finds her. Wow. Someone's like, yeah, she lives right there. <laughs> wow. And these two hook up. She's a lonely woman who's getting a divorce, and I think he's just horny. That's what I wrote in my notes. (laughs) He's going to make loads of trips to Dayton to see Mary, and they even went to the 1933 World's Fair for 10 days in Chicago. (laughs) Can you believe this? (laughs) He wanted to have some fun. He wanted to have some fun with Mary. Yeah. One month later, on June 21st, 1933, John robs his first bank, the New Carlisle National Bank, where he stole 10 grand. On July 17th, 1933, he knocks over the Commercial Bank of Indiana, getting away with 3500 August 4th, 1933, he robs the Montpelier National Bank, walking out with 6700 Then on August 14th, just 10 days later, John robbed another bank in Bluffton, Ohio, walking out the door with six thousand grand. Now, also in June 1933, men armed with machine guns try to free prison escapee Frank Nash from special agents who have recaptured him in the Kansas City Massacre. Frank Nash is killed as our one special agent and three other law enforcement officials. Pretty Boy Floyd and two accomplices are blamed, but the crime remains unsolved to this day. Hmm. So things are really ramping up. I've done I've done a story on Pretty Boy Floyd before. Right. Maybe we, like, drag him back out again. Yeah. (laughs) But the Kansas City Massacre was really the point where it's like the FBI needs to get their act together. Right, right. Yeah. They really have to get it together. Also, I want to go back. I mean, that 10,000, 3,000, 6,000, that was a ton of dough back in 1930. That is a whole lot of money. Yeah. A whole lot of money. He's raking in some He's raking in some money. I bet he's not driving a beat-up Model A anymore, (laughs) driving down the streets of Dayton, asking where Mary is. He might. He might be frugal. No, he's not. He's not. (laughs) Just kidding. The next month in July 1933, President Roosevelt meets with Attorney General Homer Cummings to discuss a, quote, super police force, end quote, to fight interstate crime. And he says he will use the Bureau of Investigation. Now, this is important because at the time, it's the middle of the Depression and Hollywood is really glorifying gangsters in the movies. Mm. And the real gangsters are out there robbing banks and killing people. But the population of America, they really don't care because they're all down and out and they all hate the banks because the banks have taken everything from them, their mortgages, their farms. So they're kind of on the side of the gangsters. But the federal government and the president of the United States know something has to be done. Right. During an August trip to Dayton, John told Mary that business was getting better and John was willing to share 
And while he's away, Mary is bragging about her new boyfriend who's going to pay for her divorce. And she tells these things within earshot of her landlady, Lucille Strickler, where she lives at 324 West 1st Street in a boarding house. Was Lucille like a Mrs. Kravitz? (laughs) (laughs) She's listening. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, Pinkerton's National Detective Agency had been hired by Citizens National Bank in Bluffton, Ohio, a place he had just robbed. Mm -hmm. And they do some digging. And Pinkerton's National Detective Agency sends a letter to the Dayton Police Inspector, C.E. Yendez, and it read, quote, John Dillinger has a female friend in Dayton, Ohio, whose given name is unknown, but her maiden name is Jenkins. This woman is suing for divorce from her husband at Dayton, Ohio, and John Dillinger is paying the expense of the divorce action. Dillinger calls upon this woman regularly Hmm. and no doubt can be apprehended in Dayton, Ohio, end quote. Wow. September 6, 1933, John Dillinger robs the Massachusetts State Bank in Indianapolis, taking $21,000. When he goes back to Dayton to see Mary, the Dayton police are using a room at the boarding house to watch Mary for weeks. And police detectives Russell Fall and Charlie Gross were even steaming open Mary's mail looking for John. Oh, wow. On September 22nd, 1933, just a couple of weeks after knocking over his latest bank, John slips into Mary's room around midnight and Lucille Strickler, the landlady, she hears him. Hmm. She calls the police while John and Mary are looking at their newly developed photos from the World's Fair. And the landlady leads police up the stairs. She knocks on Mary's door. Mary, honey, it's Mrs. Strickler. And Mary opens the door and the police bust in. Hmm. Quote, Get them up, John. We're the police, end quote. That's what one of the detectives yelled. Fall and Gross jammed the muzzle of a sawed-off shotgun and a Tommy gun into his face. John didn't attempt to use the forty-five automatic in his pocket or the smaller pistol hidden up his sleeve. He goes quietly. The newspaper reported that Dillinger later told police, quote, I would have been a fool to have pulled that gun, yeah. end quote. <laughs> At least he was smart. I mean, if you got a Tommy gun in your face, yeah. 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 The next day, the newspaper reported that John had five revolvers, a large quantity of ammunition, and $2,604 in his pocket. Well, That's a lot of walking around money. I, I just figured it up here that with inflation, that $21,000 in 1932 – is yes. v- valued at $401,000. Right. He Jeez. he stole over $7 million in today's money. That's crazy. Over $7 million. Wow. Okay. It's kind of like Ocean's Eleven. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, just making a ton of money. Yeah. Well thought out, too. Yeah. John is taken to the county jail in Lima, Ohio, where he will await trial. But John's doing more than just robbing banks. When they frisk John in Lima, he's going into prison and police find in his pocket a plan for a prison break. Hmm. But John's like, I don't know nothing. That's not mine. That's not mine. I don't know how that got in there. I don't know how that got in there. I have no idea what that is. That must have been in there when I got these clothes from Goodwill. Yeah. But just four (laughs) days later, using the same plans that were in John's pants pocket, eight of John's buddies escaped from the Indiana State Prison. Wow. They used guns smuggled in by the newly freed John Dillinger with arrangements made by Harry Pierpont's girlfriend, Mary Kinder. Eight men escaped from the Indiana State Prison, shooting two guards on their way out the door. Mm. Harry Pierpont, Charles Makeley, John Hamilton, Walter Dietrich, and Russell Clark are the men who formed 
the Dillinger Gang. Wow. And they were joined by Homer Van Meter, who had already been released on parole. Okay. One of the gang's first missions was to free John from the Allen County Jail in Lima, Ohio. And this is a jail where the sheriff and his wife actually lived oh, wow. at the jail. Wow, really? Yeah. It's like Mayberry R. It is a little bit like Mayberry. <laughs> Harry Pierpont and two other men show up as the sheriff and his wife are finishing dinner. And they tell the sheriff that they are there to return John to the Indiana State Prison for violating his parole. <laughs> But when the sheriff says, let me see your credentials, Harry Pierpont pulls a gun and the gang beats the sheriff unconscious and shoots and kills Sheriff Jesse Sarber. And the sheriff's wife then gives them the keys and they free John Dillinger and they leave the sheriff to die on the floor of the jail. They also locked the sheriff's wife and a deputy in a cell and then they make their getaway. They yeet it on out of there. They yeet it out. Now, Dillinger is famous. He's all over the newspapers across the United States, and he's even starting to get some press in London and Paris. And the movie news even covered the story of his escape. And if you don't know what the movie news is, back in the day when you went to see a movie before it all started, before the movie started, they they would have these little reels called the movie news. And they covered news stories. And in 1934, they covered this story. And this is this is the dialogue uh, for the reel. Okay. In spite of all this guard, he escaped once more using the sheriff's car by driving a stolen car across Indiana State Line of Chicago. He violated a federal law for the first time, and that put the G-men on his trail. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> not the not the OG men, but the, the G-men. G-men. <laughs> yeah, that's what they that's what they were calling them. Yeah. You know, they were they were recruiting all these men to wear suits and carry a gun, yeah. and yeah. And they most of them had never carried a gun before. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Wow. They were in the beginning. This was it was not a good group. Wow. The Dillinger gang raided police stations for guns and ammunition at Auburn, Indiana and Peru, Indiana, stealing machine guns, rifles and revolvers, a ton of ammunition and several bulletproof vests. Mm. And then they used the lamb method to rob several banks. One or two men would visit a bank during business hours. They would memorize the interior layout and note the distance from the nearest police station. They were being smart about it. Wow. Pat Charrington, Hamilton's girlfriend, described how John Dillinger and Van Meter cased one bank. They identified themselves as being officials from the National Recovery Administration in Washington. And they told the bank president that they were calling on all the banks throughout the state conducting the survey. And they were very much interested in how the various codes were operating. So they're just giving them all the information that they really need. Yeah, they're just coming up with all this stuff. Yeah, yeah they're coming up with this full story. Yeah, and they're getting and they're the info. They're the they, joint yeah. and they're getting the info yeah, that they need. Yeah, yeah. Smart. The gang members would drive through an escape route three or four times. The men drew maps showing towns, landmarks, and the number of miles between various points. These were marked on a chart which the navigator read to the driver. Hmm. And the men even hid cans of gasoline in haystacks along the escape route. Really? No need to stop for gas wow. because behind on this farm behind this haystack, wow. we've got gas. Wow. On November 13th, they robbed the American Bank and Trust in Wisconsin for $28,000. And a week later, they robbed the Unity Trust and Savings Bank in Chicago, taking $8,700. There were 12 separate bank robberies between June 21st, 1933 and June 
June 30th of 1934. Now, most of the gang members had girlfriends, and John had moved on from Mary and her loose lips Mm -hmm. to Evelyn Billy Franchetti, who was of mixed French and Native American ancestry. Billy was born on the Menominee Indian Reservation. She attended a mission school on the reservation, and then she went to a government boarding school for Indians in South Dakota. And after she was there, she moved to her aunt's home to become a nurse. And at the age of 18, she moved to Chicago to be closer to her sister. Billy and Walter Spark married on August 2nd, 1932 in Chicago, but Spark was sentenced, along with two others, in July of 1932 to a 15-year term at Leavenworth for three counts of robbery of postal substations in drugstores. Jeez. So Billy, his new girlfriend, Mm -hmm. is no stranger to crime because her husband is in Leavenworth. Sure. Billy meets John at a cabaret in November 1933, and they begin a relationship soon after that. Now, while the other girlfriends drank hard liquor, I read that John refused to give Billy any because of her Native American background and his belief that she might become an alcoholic. Mm. To which I say, okay, my grandmother was half Cherokee Indian, so whatever. Don't be saying bad things about my people. Yeah. But the men themselves rarely drank because Harry Pierpont would not allow a robbery to be committed or even planned under the influence of alcohol. He said that this is because they lived in constant danger of being caught and the men had to be alert at all times. They had to keep their head on a swivel. Wow. This is a smart group of guys. It is. I mean, this is really the first modern gang of criminals. Yeah. That's actually smart. But, you know, you think about it and it's like, they have to keep their head on a swivel and they're not drinking. They're not doing... Do they even get to enjoy the fruits of their labor? Well, and I know I don't mean that in a good way, but still. It's funny that you say that. All right. All right. <laughs> because Christmas 1933, the gang decides they need a little rest and relaxation. So they go to Daytona Beach, Florida. <laughs> Spring break. It's the whole gang with their girlfriends. I did read that Billy uh, Franchetti was the love of his life, and she is with him in Florida in Christmas 1933. But they spend Christmas and New Year's Eve in Florida, and they go out. They even drive all the way to Miami to go to the dog races. Okay. And you might wonder why these women are hanging out with bank robbers. Again, it's the height of the Depression. And if 25% of the men are out of work, you can imagine there was not a job for a woman. Sure. So women didn't mind falling into the bed of a bank robber as long as he could take care of her. Right. And Billy was a hat check girl when she met John at the dance hall, but she was more than willing to be his girl as long as he took care of her and she didn't ask questions. Quote, John was good to me. He looked after me and bought me all kinds of jewelry and cars and pets. And we went places and saw things and he gave me everything a girl wants. He treated me like a lady. Mm. End quote. So he really did take care of Billy. Sure. And here's what John said about Billy. Quote, there was something in those eyes that I will never forget. They were piercing and electric, yet there was an amused, carefree twinkle in them, too. They met my eyes and held me hypnotized for an instant, end quote. He was smitten. I think John's a little bit of a romantic. Yeah. I mean, he's buying her stuff, cars, pets, taking her places. Yeah. And he loved that she had these twinkles in her eyes. And I'm, I'm sure that- <laughs> she had a twinkle in her eyes. Yeah, and I'm sure that was sort of motivation for him to keep robbing banks and get more money so he could, you know- Take care of his woman. Yeah. 
Now, while they're in Florida, police departments and newspapers attributed many crimes to the Dillinger gang that they did not commit. Mm. Because while John and the gang are vacationing in Florida, they're accused of crimes throughout the Midwest. One Chicago newspaper accused John Dillinger of shooting a dog. And when he read it, he said, quote, hell, this is going too far. How could I shoot a dog in Chicago from down here in Florida? (laughs) Then he said, I wonder if the dog's name was Matt, meaning Matt Leach, who was Dillinger's nemesis because he's the chief of the Indiana State Uh, Police Department. Okay. Yeah. How in the hell can I shoot a dog all the way from Florida? Yeah. After they vacation, they go right back to robbing banks. January 15th, 1934, They rob the First National Bank of East Chicago. And while they are robbing this bank, a police officer was killed, a detective named William Patrick O'Malley. And John will later tell his lawyer, quote, I've always felt bad about O'Malley getting killed, but only because of his wife and kids. He stood right in the way and kept throwing slugs at me. What else could I do? End quote. Now, there are those who have said that it wasn't John himself who fired the shots as they were leaving the bank, but one of his gang members. But O'Malley was mortally wounded, but he kept firing even though they were shooting him with a Tommy gun, with machine gun fire. Wow, wow. He did hit John Dillinger, but John was wearing a bulletproof vest, and Detective O'Malley had a wife and three daughters. That's too bad. They all head out to Tucson, Arizona after this. They go to Tucson via Route 66. Just like the song, they go through Chicago to St. Louis to Tucson to get away from the heat of killing this police officer. But while John and Billy and the gang are in Tucson, they're all noticed by the local police. And here's why. The hotel where the gang is staying catches on fire. And this tipped off the police as to who was actually staying at the hotel. Oh, wow. Because these guys have really recognizable faces, right? of course. They're sort of celebrities. Yeah. And then their damn hotel catches on fire. (laughs) So they're outside with everybody else and the police and the fire department are all there. And they're like, hey, don't those guys look kind of familiar? Don't we know you? Billy and John arrived a little bit later, and they stay in a different hotel. But it didn't matter because the local Tucson police follow and stake out the gang. And on January 25th, 1934, Dillinger, Pierpont, Makeley, and Clark were arrested in Tucson. And the latter three were extradited to Lima, Ohio, and Dillinger was extradited to Indiana for the murder of Officer O'Malley. And he's transported by extravagant and, for the time, very unusual means. They put him in an airplane. Hmm. And he put up such a struggle that police had to shackle him and virtually drag him on the plane. Wow. And they chained him to a post inside. Wow. And he said, quote, hell, I don't jump out of these things, end quote. (laughs) But John's the anti-hero, right? When Dillinger and his gang were arrested in Tucson, scores of people filed through the city jailhouse just for the opportunity to lay eyes on the dashing criminal. You're kidding. No. It was like a zoo. Businesses even used him as an unsanctioned celebrity endorsement. Upon learning that the car-loving outlaw drove their automobile, one Hudson dealership hung a banner reading, quote, Dillinger chooses the 1934 (laughs) Hudson for his personal use, end quote. Oh, my God. And when Dillinger later switched to a Ford, the company printed brochures saying, quote, will they catch John Dillinger? Not until they get him out of a Ford V8, end quote. (laughs) Great marketing. I mean, 
they love this guy, yeah. so they're using it to their best advantage. Can you imagine if they had social media back in those days? Uh, yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> But John Dillinger, he's a folk hero to Americans who are disillusioned with the failing banks and the ineffective federal government. And when he arrived in jail at Crown Point, Indiana on January 30th, 1934, they've all said, this place is inescapable. They <laughs> take him there and they're like, it's inescapable. He Wanna can't bet? get out. Want a bet? <laughs> Want a bet? Yeah. <laughs> This is also where he poses for these infamous photos where he's got his arm resting on the DA's shoulder. He's like got his arm up on oh, his yeah, shoulder. I remember that one. And he's smiling and he's answering questions from the press like he's a celebrity. Yeah. Because he is. Yeah. The reporters are captivated by his charisma and his sense of humor. And John poses for a photo with prosecutor Robert Estill. And he places his arm on his shoulder. And this is the scandalous photo that's eventually going to ruin Robert Estill's career as a prosecutor. Yeah. And speaking of careers, J. Edgar Hoover is mad. (laughs) His people are failing on every front with the gangsters of this time. They drove faster cars. They had Thompson machine guns, Tommy guns. They were basically running roughshod over the law enforcement wherever they went. And Hoover's madder than a box of frogs because he wanted the FBI to take down John Dillinger, not the local yokels of the Tucson, Arizona police. And J. Edgar Hoover was not a patient man. He was not. He was a young guy. He was oh, a hothead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He loved having um, lots of publicity. Yep. But he wanted it all to be favorable. Yep. Meanwhile, back in Indiana, John will never be tried for the murder of Officer O'Malley during the robbery of the East Chicago Bank. Really? Because on March 3rd, 1934, he escaped by threatening guards with... A wooden gun oh, that he had no. carved from a washboard. And it fooled them? It fooled them. And he also had some cash payments made by his attorney, Louis ah, Pickett. Well, there you go. That explains the wooden gun then. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Herbert Youngblood, an African-American prisoner, escapes along with him. And John Dillinger drives to Chicago in the sheriff's car, <laughs> Sheriff Lillian Holly's car, forcing a garage employee to drive him while he sang, Get along, little doggy. <laughs> yippee ki yo Get along, little doggy. That's the song. He's singing this. Wow. Now, by driving across state lines in a stolen vehicle, John Dillinger commits a federal crime, which allows the Division of Investigation to pursue him. This is the FBI, what's going to become the FBI. And nobody's happier about this than J. Edgar Hoover himself, who's hired a man named Melvin Purvis, Ah. who he thinks is going to be the key to capturing John Dillinger and other gangsters. Right. On March 16th, 1934, Herbert Youngblood is killed by police in Port Huron, Michigan. One week later, on March 24th, Pierpont and Makeley are sentenced to the electric chair for the murder of Sheriff Jesse Sarber. Wow. Clark is sentenced to life in prison. So remember, they all went back to Ohio. Right. And John Dillinger went to Indiana. Indiana. Lima and Indiana. So after the jailbreak, J. Edgar Hoover tells his top agent, Melvin Purvis, who's only 29 years old and didn't have a lot of law enforcement experience, that he wanted him to go after John Dillinger. And Melvin wants to put wiretaps on the phones of Dillinger and his families, but he can't 
he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to do it. He had to call an attorney in Washington, D.C. just to find out how do you put a tap on a phone. <laughs> hey, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and he's supposed to be like the guy. Yeah, exactly. Plus, Melvin Purvis had bad information. He had bad intel because John Dillinger was being protected on the streets of Chicago. So nothing happened for over a month. There was no trace of John Dillinger anywhere. They find him by accident because he moved to Minneapolis, St. Paul, which was actually a haven for bank robbers at the time. And while he's there, he started the second Dillinger gang. And this one included Babyface Nelson, a.k.a. Lester Gillis. And as a side note, I read that Babyface Nelson was a psychopath Mm. because he would laugh while he was shooting his Tommy gun down the street. And this is in direct opposition to John, who was a he was a really cool cat. He didn't want to kill anybody unless his life was in danger. Right. But Babyface Nelson didn't care who he killed. He killed because he liked to kill. Yeah, he did and laughed about it, apparently. So John and Billy go to the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. He's still got his girlfriend with him. And Mm -hmm. they rent a place at Lincoln Court Apartments under the assumed name Mr. and Mrs. Carl T. Hellman in a lovely neighborhood in St. Paul. But the landlady thinks it's hinky. Back to those daggone landladies, man. (laughs) The Mrs. Kravitz. Yeah. She thinks it's hinky because Billy and John would come and go at odd hours. And they had, quote, weird-shaped luggage, end quote. Oh. I'm assuming that means they had guns in the luggage. Violin cases. Yeah. Yeah. So the landlady goes to the FBI and she's like, look it. I got a bank robber living in my apartment building. Mm -hmm. And the FBI is like, whatever, lady. (laughs) Yeah. But she won't leave. She's like, I'm not leaving until you take me seriously. So the men in the FBI office send two young agents to knock on the door of this apartment just to appease this woman. And Billy hears a knock on the door and she says, quote, just a sec, my husband's indisposed, end quote. Okay. And John Dillinger didn't come to the door, but I read that his Tommy gun did come to the door. Oh, wow. The two FBI agents ran, and while they're trying to leave, more members of John's gang roll up on the scene, and there's a gunfight in this nice little neighborhood in front of this little apartment building. Wow. Which I think probably had the landlady rethinking what had happened. (laughs) Yeah. Now, John and Billy get away, but as they're driving away, John realizes that he's been shot. He's been shot in the leg. It was a ricocheted bullet of his own doing. So the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover can't find him, but this little old lady in Minneapolis, St. Paul did. Yep. And John goes to his dad's place. They should have hired her. (laughs) They should have hired all the landladies. (laughs) Just wait. It gets better. It gets better. Should have hired all the landladies. But um, to recover from this gunshot wound in the leg, he goes to his dad's house in Indiana. Okay. And while he's at his dad's house from April 5th, To April 8th, 1934, John and Billy are in Mooresville, and the gathering was a happy one that included Sunday dinners. And the following day, John and Billy drove to Chicago. Now, the FBI, the DOI, or the FBI, they're really watching for John, but they find Billy. Like, they're casing them, they're following them, but they actually followed Billy, and she's arrested while she's in a Chicago restaurant. Hmm. And they charge her with obstruction of justice because she allowed John to hide out in what was her St. Paul, Minnesota apartment. I assume they didn't have aiding and abetting at that time. 
Yeah, I guess it was just obstruction. Yeah. I'm sure they did, but what I read was that they charged her with obstruction. Gotcha. Now, John is watching her being arrested. He's just around the block, and he desperately wanted to shoot the men who were taking her away, but mm. he didn't. He knew he couldn't. Right. He wanted to break her out of jail. He knew he couldn't do that either. But meanwhile, the FBI and J. Edgar are losing faith in Melvin Purvis, who can't seem to get a handle on John. And here's the thing. Melvin really liked the limelight. He loved talking to the press. He always wore these really smart suits. He was very well-spoken. All things that should have made J. Edgar Hoover a little bit jealous. And in the beginning, Hoover wasn't jealous. He didn't care. But when Melvin couldn't make good on his promise to take down Dillinger, then J. Edgar was pissed. And he was jealous. Because Melvin was getting all this attention, yet he was not doing his job. And the longer John Dillinger is on the lam, the more tension builds between Melvin and J. Edgar Hoover. And then comes the huge blunder of Little Bohemia. John and Babyface and their girlfriends and a few others in the gang decide they need a weekend away to get their act together and plan. And they gather at a small inn in Mercer, Wisconsin called... Little Bohemia. Okay. The sign for the inn, I've seen a picture of this place, and the sign for the inn said, Dine, Dance, Swim, Steak, Duck, Chicken. <laughs> they just put it all out there. It's all out there. Yeah. That's what you can do here. Yeah. But the gang takes over the inn for the weekend. But the inn owner sees John Dillinger's face. And then he sees John Dillinger's face in the Chicago Tribune. <sighs> And the owner calls John into his office, and he shows him his own photo in the newspaper and says, quote, you're John Dillinger. Oh, man, he's a brave man. He is. And John replies, quote, yeah, I'm John Dillinger, but don't worry. I'm not here to hurt you. We just need some quiet time, end quote. Wow. Okay. But the innkeeper did worry. Yeah. (laughs) He had his wife and his extended family working at the inn, and he was worried. And the innkeeper's family actually called the FBI in Chicago, and they're like, hold, please. (laughs) (laughs) And Melvin Purvis himself gets on the phone. Wow. Melvin puts together a team, and he leaves in a plane for Wisconsin, and they arrive at Little Bohemia on April 22, 1934. There were 24 FBI agents who descended on this little inn, all led by Melvin. They came by car, by air, from Chicago and Minneapolis. They got John Dillinger and Babyface Nelson all holed up in this tiny little inn in Wisconsin. Wow. Now, it's important to remember that most of these agents have only had a gun for about six to nine months. (laughs) (laughs) And some of them didn't really know how to use it all that well. Much fire it at a human being trying to kill them. Right. And the gang, the Dillinger gang, they all have Tommy guns. And they've killed before. And they've killed before. I mean, Babyface Nelson likes it. Yeah. And here's what happens. The FBI agents approach the Little Bohemia Inn and outside... Dogs, (laughs) the dogs outside of the inn begin to bark. (laughs) Those damn dogs. Uh. Yeah. They get in your way every single time. But these dogs see these agents because they're creeping in. They've started, it's in a very wooded area. They've started from the outside. They're creeping in toward the inn. The dogs are like, what's up? (laughs) And start barking. And John looks out the window to see what's happening. It's dark. It's a very dense forest. And he knows, yeah, yeah, we're in trouble. His spidey senses. Yeah. 
Now, at the same time that all this is happening, there are three men who'd been up to no good in drinking at the inn bar. And they jump into their car and the dogs are barking and there are these three men who have the radio blaring and they're driving straight down this lane where the agents are and the agents are yelling and telling them to stop, but they don't stop. And the FBI agents shoot the car all to hell. Oh, my God. And there are three innocent men inside. Oh. They killed one of them, and they badly injured the other two. And because of all this commotion, John escapes out a window yeah. at the back of the inn. Wow. Babyface Nelson and his girlfriend, they all scatter into the woods. Babyface shoots an agent, and they shoot back. They get away going into another nearby inn, and Dillinger steals a car and leaves. Babyface Nelson is running through the woods, and he happens upon this little house that's just a mile away. And the FBI agents show up at this same house looking for a car or a telephone or help <laughs> or anything. And they drive up, and Babyface Nelson is standing in the driveway with his gun. He knows they are FBI, and he opens fire on this car. And he then takes their car and drives away. He kills one agent and wounds two others. Wow. It couldn't have gone any worse for them, it's right? Like, it's like Keystone Cops. So Melvin Purvis and the FBI not only shot innocent people— they made a complete mockery Jeez. of this whole takedown of John Dillinger. It was embarrassing. And by dawn, there were dead men everywhere. And John and Babyface Nelson were both gone. Wow. And Melvin Purvis looks like the stupidest law enforcement agency in the country. And J. Edgar Hoover was really happy. Yeah, now, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and and they're trying to advertise themselves. The FBI is no longer the G-men-fueled good guys who are fighting crime. They're just the idiots who let John Dillinger and Babyface <laughs> Nelson get away. Yeah. And the papers loved it of course to add insult to injury the fbi had babyface nelson's wife under surveillance in chicago but babyface slipped into her home in chicago and whisked her away Jeez. and none of them the guys staking out the house they didn't even realize what was happening wow so he had his girlfriend at little bohemia he goes back to chicago for his wife they're watching her staking it out and, and he just slips in takes her away Jeez. Now, J. Edgar Hoover doesn't fire Melvin Purvis, but he gives the job of taking down John Dellinger to a man named Sam Callie. Okay. But because of his fame, life is becoming increasingly difficult for Dillinger. I mean, he can't even go to a tiny little place in Wisconsin right. in the middle of the forest without the innkeeper saying, yo, you're John Dillinger. And I'm really surprised that uh, that he trusted the innkeeper to keep his mouth we just, shut. We just need some R&R. &R. We just need some time. I know. I think they were all very trusting people. Yeah. Maybe he thought that they were, that the innkeeper and his family would be afraid of them, so they'd just let him be. Well, and too, I mean, if I was the innkeeper, I'd be like feigning like, wow, it's I've got a celebrity here and maybe he gained <laughs> his trust. You know yeah, what I'm maybe, saying? Maybe, maybe. Yeah. But John can't look like John anymore. He'd already dyed his hair. He'd even grown a mustache. He was trying to evade being seen. But his face was so well known during the height of this notoriety that he was forced to take drastic measures. Everybody knew who he was. Hmm. So he and Homer Van Meter underwent plastic surgery. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. 
May 27, 1934, at the home of Jimmy Probasco, a bar owner with connections to the Chicago mob, hosts them for their plastic surgery. The two men spent the following month recuperating at Jimmy's house. John had the doctors remove a pair of moles, fill in a depression on his nose, excise a scar, flatten his dimples, and tug the corner of his mouth up in a right smirk. <laughs> wow. And remember, in those days, plastic surgery was not a common thing. Yeah. It was very primitive. It was very dangerous. It was very time consuming. It was very painful. I can imagine. And John underwent more than one operation, more than one round of plastic surgery. And some of his surgeries were more successful than others. In the end, he could only slightly alter his appearance. He had one round of plastic surgery. He was really disappointed to find out that he looked the same. And that's when one of the doctors suggested that... He remove his fingerprints as a way of becoming undetected. Wow. Yeah. Who is this doctor? So John Dillinger decided to choose acid to burn the tips of his fingers. Good grief. The procedure appeared to be successful, but faint ridge markings were still visible on his fingertips after the full healing process. So when your skin repairs itself, yeah. it gives you fingerprints again. Sure. So at the time, maybe as soon as he had them burnt off, he didn't have them. But right. as, as it healed, he had he had markings again. Right. And Homer Van Meter, he also wanted some of the same alterations to his face. He wanted the removal of an anchor tattoo on his right arm as well. Okay. Now, during his recovery, Lewis Pickett, Dillinger's lawyer, and Arthur O'Leary, Pickett's legal investigator visited Jimmy Probasco's house all the time, and they got to know John Dillinger really well. And they said he dressed neatly and conservatively. He kept his fingernails perfectly manicured. John Dillinger liked to read, and he enjoyed talking about current events and baseball. Hmm. He was friendly and good-natured. He rarely used profanity. And John had an outstanding ability to remain calm in an emergency and to act quickly and rationally. And Pickett and O'Leary said that John did not have a killer instinct. Hmm. So I think he had a mind for crime, but not a killer instinct. Right. On June 6, 1934, President Roosevelt allowed the Justice Department to offer reward money for criminals. And on June 18th, Congress gave the new FBI agents full arrest powers and allowed them to carry firearms without obtaining special permission. So it's only now that the G-men are allowed to carry whatever kind of gun they want, and they don't have to answer to anybody for it. On John's 31st birthday, June 22nd, 1934, he was declared America's first public enemy number Number one. one. (laughs) The following day, the federal government promised a $10,000 reward for his capture and a $5,000 reward for information leading to his arrest. Mm. So John needs a new hideout to go with his new face. So he moved into an apartment owned by a woman named Anna Sage on July 4th, 1934. She's also known as Anna Campanis. Now, it's not really known how John met Anna Sage. Some stories say that the relationship went back several years. Others say that they met in 1934 through his then-girlfriend, Polly Hamilton, who worked for Sage. Okay. Anna is originally from Romania. She moved to America with her husband, settling in East Chicago, Indiana. 
After the birth of her son, her marriage ended, and she supported herself as a prostitute for mobster Big Bill Subotic. Mm. And after his death, she took over the business and worked as a madam, opening up additional brothels. Oh, wow. Now, Anna is facing deportation proceedings for operating these brothels. Anna's a madam. Right. And she owns and runs this house of ill repute in northern Indiana. She's done it for years. And one of her girls working for her is Polly Hamilton. Now, Polly becomes John's new girlfriend. She eases the grief he's feeling because he really misses Billy. But he can't do anything about it. Okay. But what John doesn't know is that Anna Sage is a double agent. She's working a double game. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because she's going to turn him over. She's saying she'd turn him over to the FBI so she won't be deported. Uh, She wants to make a deal. Yep. So Anna Sage sets up John Dillinger to be arrested. July 22nd, 1934. The G-men, the agents, gather in downtown Chicago, the downtown Chicago FBI office. Remember, they're in northern Indiana. Mm -hmm. I read that it's July 22nd. I read that it was 95 degrees that day in the city. There's no air conditioning in 1934. These agents wait all day in their suits in the heat for John Dillinger to arrive at a movie theater. That's what she's saying they're going to do. And soon they're starting to think that Anna's not for real. They think they've been duped again. But finally, Anna calls the FBI and she says that Polly and John and her are going to the movies at the Biograph Theater to see Manhattan Melodrama starring Clark Gable. Now, Melvin Purvis and 12 others are sitting in their cars right in front of this movie theater, the Biograph Theater. And Melvin actually sees John Dillinger walk beside the passenger side of his door of his car. And he's got Polly Hamilton with him and Anna Sage is on the other side and Anna is wearing an orange skirt. They go into the movie theater. There are 24 agents, Indiana police, Chicago cops. They wait for two hours. While they watch this Clark Gable movie. Wow. They don't go into the movie theater. Yeah. At 10.30 p.m., John Dillinger walks out. Melvin is standing in front of the box office, and here's what's supposed to go down. I mean, these guys, are you (laughs) kidding me? Melvin is supposed to give a signal to everybody else. He's going to light a cigar when he sees that it is John Dillinger that's coming out of the movie theater. That's the signal to move in. (laughs) But there's really no plan after this. What they're going to do when they move in on him. But the plan really is they're going to shoot him. They're going to shoot first and ask questions later. Right. When the movie is finished, he walks out of the theater between Anna and Polly. He turns left. Melvin lights a cigar and nobody sees it happen. (laughs) Nobody sees him light the cigar. Oh, man. Yeah. But there is a guy, Charlie Winstead, a Texas FBI agent who's brought up to Chicago because he's, quote, good with guns. (laughs) You go, Texas. There you go. And as John Dillinger turns left and starts walking, Charlie mutters to the agent next to him, that's Dillinger in the hat. Yep. Charlie Winstead and his buddy walk behind John. They're about 10 to 20 feet behind him. And John Dillinger's spidey senses kick up yep. and he knows something something bad's about to happen right he turns and he looks into charlie's eyes and he knows he's been had four shots were fired two hit john dillinger one goes into the back of his neck traveling upward hitting the second vertebrae before exiting through his eye mm. 
That must have been Charlie. Dead-eyed Dick Charlie must have shot that one. Yeah. And John Dillinger falls at the entrance to an alley. He's dead within moments. Yeah. Now, Dillinger's family gave him a Christian burial on July 25th, 1934. He was laid to rest in the family plot at Crown Hill Cemetery in Indianapolis. His relatives put him under three feet of concrete and scrap metal. Now, there are only a few reasons you want to bury your relative this way. (laughs) I was going to ask, why did they do that? Well, maybe you think he's a target for grave robbers or trophy seekers. Or maybe you don't want anybody to find out that it's not really him in the grave. What? John's body was put on public display at yeah, the Cook County Morgue. I've and seen those thousands pictures. of people came to see it. A Wild West show even offered Dillinger's father $5,000 for his son's body. And yes, they did plan to put it in their icky, icky Wild West exhibition. <laughs> oh, man. So maybe burying him under three feet of concrete was a good idea. But John's father is quoted in the Chicago Tribune upon picking up his son's body amid 5,000 gawkers. Quote, they shot him down in cold blood. I don't approve of shooting a fellow in cold blood. He was surrounded by 15 men, and that ain't fair. I'd rather have him shot than captured, though, he said. Mm. End quote. Wow. John's father actually said that he didn't have the money and couldn't afford to take John's body back home and provide a funeral. Then later that day, he conferred with attorney Lewis Pickett, who had acted for John on several occasions. And following that little meeting, that little conversation, Mr. Dillinger said, well, I guess I do have the money (laughs) to take him home and have a funeral after all. So his attorney is taking care of John, even in the afterlife. Right. Of course, Melvin Purvis was there to take as much credit as he possibly could, and the Attorney General Homer Cummings had this to say, quote, This marks the end of the trail for John Dillinger, but it is not the end of the trail for the Department of Justice. For us, this is but one episode in a carefully planned campaign against organized <laughs> crime, which we have been conducting for more than a year. Oh, wow. What has happened is an illustration of the success that can be accomplished by concentrated effort and fullest coordination between federal and local authorities. To bring about that sort of friendly and helpful cooperation is one of the cardinal points of our movement to suppress crime, end quote. (laughs) And I just, I read that and I thought, Melvin, nobody saw, what was the thing with lighting the damn cigar? Y'all get your act together. You know what scene just popped into my head? What? You know, in Animal House, when he's, uh, when they're doing the tribunal, he's trying to give the speech and then they shut him down and and all of a sudden everybody starts going, (laughs) 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 Exactly. That's what that reminded me of. (laughs) Now, a week after Dillinger's death, his family signed a contract with a vaudeville show. In between acts at the Lyric Theater in Indianapolis, they talked about Dillinger's life, and the traveling show was called, quote, Crime Doesn't Pay, oh, wow. After she's released from prison, Billy Franchetti joined the Dillinger family for five years after her release and his death. She had returned to the Menominee Reservation, where she married again two more times, and she died of cancer on January 13, 1969, at the age of 61. Hmm. As for Anna Sage, well, she did give the FBI what they needed to kill John Dillinger, and she was supposed to be granted to stay in the United States. You know, quid pro quo. Sure. Anna was deported back to Romania. (laughs) Sorry, Anna. Although Dillinger never repented for his crimes, he did regret his chosen lifestyle. Before undergoing plastic surgery, he told O'Leary, quote, I want to live like other people. Billy and I would like to be married and settle down somewhere, end quote. Yeah. That's called 
foreshadowing. (laughs) That ain't going to (laughs) happen. In spite, well, hang on. In spite of his outwardly reckless behavior, John had no illusions about his situation. He told O'Leary, quote, I'm traveling a one-way road and I'm not fooling myself as to what the end will be. If I surrender, I know it means the electric chair. If I go on, it's just a question of how much time I have left, end quote. So he knew. He knew. Yeah. There are plenty of people who wonder if the authorities really got their man that day outside the Biograph Theater because not everybody was as convinced as J. Edgar Hoover. And in fact... According to the Associated Press, a pair of John's relatives still call the official version of the story of Dillinger a myth. A niece and a nephew, Carol and Michael Thompson of the gangster, filed affidavits in an Indiana court in June of 2019 to have their uncle's body exhumed in order to corroborate their, quote, evidence that demonstrates that the individual who was shot and killed at the Biograph Theater in Chicago on July 22, 1934, may not have been, in fact, my uncle, John H. Dillinger, end quote. What, what are they basing that on? Hang on. Okay. So they wanted to exhume his body, and this is all a part of a larger documentary project about John Dillinger's life and death that was supposed to be on the History Channel. But the History Channel pulls out of the project that same year, 2019. And the judge in Indianapolis dismissed this lawsuit that was brought by the Dillinger's relatives, saying that it was up to the owner of the cemetery whether or not they would have permission to exhume the body. And the cemetery said, not on your life. Hmm. We're not exhuming this body. Okay. Now, the FBI says, nothing to see here, move along. Right. But here is the evidence produced that holds people to the idea that it wasn't John Dillinger who died that day and is buried in the grave under three feet of concrete. In fact, the autopsy report itself vanished for 50 years until it was discovered jammed inside a random paper bag at the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office in 1984. Really? His fingerprint card was missing from the Cook County morgue for over 30 years. The autopsy results show that the person buried in Crown Point didn't match John Dillinger in several ways, several key ways. Okay. He had different colored eyes. The corpse's eyes were brown. John's were a steely gray. The fingerprints were very mismatched and didn't fit John's exactly, although the FBI said that they had 300 points of similarity. John was missing an incisor tooth. The corpse had all of his teeth. And the corpse also had rheumatic heart disease, and it was said that John did not have a heart condition. Hmm. And John's father's first words at the morgue were, quote, that's not my boy, end quote. Really? Now, souvenir hunters, they dabbed handkerchiefs in his blood at the scene of the shooting. Thousands of people lined up to view his bullet riddled body when it was put on display at the morgue. A mob of spectators later gathered at the funeral home. And despite efforts to keep the date a secret, more than 5000 people appeared at the cemetery for the burial. Wow. And Dillinger's casket was encased, as I said, in cement to deter, they said, grave robbers. Okay. His headstone had to be replaced several times because people kept chipping it off for keepsakes. Gotcha. But there's a man named J. Robert Nash, who is a crime writer. He's written more than one book claiming that John Dillinger lived well past the supposed day of his death. And here are his reasons why. 
The FBI, a still fledgling organization back in those days, brimmed with mistake-prone amateurs, and perhaps they shot the wrong man, had no choice but to cover it up. After all, they'd already shot three other men they Mm -hmm. they mistook for Dillinger's gang during the botched raid at Little Bohemia. Melvin Purvis perpetuated the lie to keep his job, and according to Nash, J. Edgar Hoover was all over Melvin to finally capture this suave criminal. After all, he was making authorities look bad, and the public loved him. They loved John, and it was they made a huge deal out of killing Dillinger, only to turn around later and take it all back. That would have been too much for right. the agency to handle. Yep. They also think that maybe Dillinger aided in the faking of his own death and laughed in the background at Crown Point Cemetery as he watched men dig his grave. Hmm. Dillinger fled west to live out the rest of his life on a Native American reservation with a new wife. Nash claims he has a picture of the two taken in Oregon in 1948. Oh, wow. But this writer, Nash, his greatest claim is that years after 1934, he actually met John Dillinger. Really? Or at least it was a man he believed could have been Dillinger. The meeting took place in Puente, California. Nash and the man stood in a dark room and had a brief conversation. Quote, I do not know for certain that the man I talked to was John Dillinger or not. If that was the case, however, it was not my obligation to inform anyone about it. For according to the FBI, John Herbert Dillinger had been dead since July 22, 1934. The world bought Hoover's story, and it is welcome to it. I told my story, and the world is welcome to that, too. End Mm. quote. Side note, (laughs) kind of a funny one. (laughs) One story about John Dillinger long outlasted the famous outlaw. The claim that his male organ was unusually large (laughs) and that he possessed extraordinary sexual prowess. (laughs) The morgue photograph of Dillinger under a sheet helped to promote this story because his arm is under the sheet and it created a huge bulge (laughs) that some viewers misinterpreted as his genitalia. Wow. At the time of Dillinger's death, newspapers ran the photo only after retouching it to remove the scandalous bulge. (laughs) And though an autopsy revealed his physical endowment to be normal, the legend persisted with some claiming that the Smithsonian had kept his penis (laughs) for its collection. Wow. All of this is kind of funny because one of his nicknames was Jackrabbit. <laughs> and we don't need to go into that. But because of his <laughs> graceful moves and quick getaways from the police. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. So did John Dillinger live or die that day in Chicago outside the movie theater? We may never know. Wow. But that is the story of John Dillinger, the famous gangster. And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners, have you read any good books lately, or have you listened to any good books? All of the Sex and Lies series books, as well as the Jane Doe series, are available on Audible and iTunes. Hotter than hell in half of Alabama, the Sex and Lies series begins with Sex, Lies, and Sweet Tea. There are nine books to listen to in that series alone. Left as a newborn to die in a dumpster, she has no name. Tossed from foster home to foster home, she has no family. With no known past, she's deemed a perfect fit for a task force Washington denies exists. 
A selective assassin for the United States government, Jane Doe tracks down known terrorists on domestic soil. The Jane Doe books have been called a bit military, a bit assassin, and a bit genius. Start the new year by listening to a good book by me, Chris Calvert, on Audible or iTunes. Or if you'd like to read, go to chriscalvert.com and download some free books. And thanks for being a listener of Hitch to Homicide. Wow. You know, the one thing that just amazes me about that, when they caught him in uh, Dayton, yes. Ohio. Yes. And uh, they arrested him and had $2,300. Yeah. In I'm his only, pocket? Yeah. That $2,300 is about $43,000. He's, no. he's got a lot of walking around change. Yeah, $43,000 in today's money. Yeah. forty three. That was his that was his walking around. Yeah. I feel good if I have $20 in my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> I never carry cash. Now, my favorite thing is to put on a winter coat and find like a 20 yeah. in your pocket. Oh, yeah. It's like exactly. gold. But remember, at the beginning of the podcast, I said he'd stolen over $7 million in today's money. Yeah. But the FBI spent like... Two million in 1934. <laughs> so whatever that is now, yeah. what two million dollars is now, is what they spent. That's crazy. Yeah, wow. it's crazy. It's crazy. Yep, pub- he was the very first public enemy number one. That's amazing. All right, well let's let's shift gears here. All right, and do a little. Well, bless your heart. Well, bless your heart. All right, here we go. <laughs> A bungling felon from Washington State made a series of blunders when he shot himself in the testicles and tried to hide the weapon. What? All while storing drugs in his anus, a report said Wednesday. I don't even know where to start with this one. There's a lot to take in here. Cameron Jeffrey Wilson, 27, was carrying a pistol in his front pocket while in his cashmere Washington apartment on April 5th. When the firearm accidentally discharged and pierced his groin and thigh, according to the Winnetachi World News. So he's just hanging out in his apartment. Yep. He's got a gun in his pocket. (laughs) No jokes, please. Okay. Yeah. Wilson, who is a 13-time convicted felon, Mm. told his girlfriend to dispose of the weapon before heading to the hospital. Get rid of this. I I just shot my balls off. I've got to go to the hospital. Exactly. When the ex-con finally went to the hospital, a balloon of marijuana slipped out of his anus while Uh. a doctor was operating on the gunshot wound, (laughs) court records show. (laughs) It's so unfortunate. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Cops also arrived at the hospital when alerted of the gunshot wound and searched Wilson's car, where they discovered a bag of meth in the bloodstained jeans he was wearing when he shot himself. Can you imagine? Listen, lots of things happen in the OR. OR nurses, (laughs) you guys are the best. But can you imagine being in that operating room? Oh, my gosh. How do you keep from laughing? And I'm sure they were like, what in the hell? Yeah. The officers issued an arrest warrant for Wilson, and he turned himself into the police on April 18th. As he was being processed at the Chelan County Regional Justice Center, Wilson was strip searched and another balloon of marijuana slipped out of his anus, the paper said. What is he doing? (laughs) While in jail, Wilson made a number of calls to his girlfriend and asked her not to cooperate with investigators working on this case. 
authorities were listening in on the calls. Of course they were. (laughs) Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse. The convicted felon was charged with possession of a firearm, unlawful possession of meth, possession of a controlled substance in a correctional facility, and four counts of tampering with a witness. (laughs) (laughs) Wilson was being held on $110,000 bail and is in due in court on June 18th. Hopefully he doesn't have marijuana stuffed up his butt. Well, all I can say is, oh, dude, bless. Bless your heart. Bless his heart. Oh, my my gosh. Well, if you know somebody whose heart needs to be blessed or you know a bless your heart, all Mm -hmm. you have to do is go to the website, hitchtohomicide.com. There's a pull-down menu. You can suggest a case there as well. Yep. It's 2023, and people have pot in their butthole. Oh, my gosh. I I don't know. I don't know. Just everything about that story is wrong. It's bad. I know. It's so bad. Yeah, the dude needs to think. You'd think he would learn the first time. Well, he just needs to think about another career path. There's a place to put your your weed, man. That's not it. I don't think that's it. Oh, I don't want to think about it. Oh, my goodness. Well, that is all we have this week. That's my amazing husband out there. And that's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. Bye, y'all.